What's up, everybody? This is the Cover Band Confidential Podcast, the podcast for cover band musicians and band leaders to learn how to rock more and suck less. In Atlanta, Georgia, I am Adam Johnson, and this week is something a bit different than our normal conversation. Last Thursday, Dan and I were asked to do a guest lecture at Louisiana Tech University. I know. I was just as surprised as you guys were. One of our patrons, Rob, teaches a music industry class there and asked if we would want to talk to his students about our experience in the music industry. And after we got over the shock of anybody thinking our opinions were worth sharing with young people, we, of course, said yes. It was an awesome experience and hopefully the first of more of these types of talks. If you are in any sort of higher education and think that whatever it is we have to say is valuable, hit us up, coverbankconfidential at gmail.com. The conversation went so well that when Rob wrapped the class, he pitched the podcast so well that we're actually going to give Mike Schulte the week off. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Rob Sharp and his class at Louisiana Tech University. Okay, guys, we're going to go ahead and start. I'm going to do a short introduction and then turn it over to you guys. Okay, class, today we have with us Dan Ray and Adam Johnson from Cover Band Confidential. I feel like I know these guys because I listen to them so much. Uh, Adam and I have had a few visits, and these guys have a wealth of information from gigging for years, managing bands, uh, multiple musical acts, uh, just a lot of stuff. And I hope you have come prepared with questions to ask them. But I'm just going to ask them to make a presentation first, and then we'll do Q&A at the end of class. All right, guys, take it away. I guess we'll do it alphabetically. That seems to be how everything sure. else is built. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my name is Adam Johnson. I was actually in a program very similar to this at one of your rival schools. I have a music business degree from Middle Tennessee State University, but that was a long time ago. We were talking about the big eight record labels when I started. And I think by the time we were done, we were down to like the big three. Started playing guitar, I think around 10 when I left. I went to Nashville in, in 2000. And outside of school, I toured and played professionally for about 10 years uh, with a couple of original groups and then playing for recording artists. When my last kind of like original project broke up, we had done Warp Tour and a bunch of other things and took about a year off and, and didn't really know where, where I wanted to go as far as performing or, or doing music goes. And uh, some of mine had started this kind of goofy event called Yacht Rock Thursdays, where they would dress up in these polyester suits and do, you know, AM Gold songs by bands like Ambrosia and the Doobie Brothers. And it kind of took off and, and became this massive phenomenon in, uh, in Atlanta, which is where I, I currently live. And I started working with them uh, and kind of got introduced to the world of playing private events in the cover band world. And after doing that for a couple of years, decided to try it for myself, started a group primarily doing 80s music, and uh, we did really well. And after a few years of doing that, it, it became kind of stale, and I wanted to be able to do other kinds of stuff. So I decided to create a website that basically pitched my groups as an agency. And so I now have this stable of bands that are basically the same branding and marketing for each of them. And uh, that is primarily how we run our business. Currently composes of an 80s band, a 90s band, and then kind of a, a variety group that does all of those things. We do live band karaoke, which is just all of those set lists, but you get to be the singer of the group. And then there's also a pop punk emo version of that that I have been working on as that was the uh, the genre music that I played professionally for a number of years. At some point, it seemed like I knew some stuff that other people didn't know. So I started a blog called Cover Band Confidential and found uh, my buddy Dan on, uh, you know, Reddit threads and other conversations online and was like, hey, do you want to write a couple of articles? And he said yes. And then a couple months later, I was like, hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. Would you want to do that? And he said, sure. And uh, we're coming up on 300 episodes and 500 YouTube videos and all of the other things that we've got going on. Um, outside of that, I do content creation around just creative work in general and uh, have found followings on things like TikTok where I've got a few thousand folks who for some reason want to listen to what I have to say. And uh, that's pretty much it. 
for now, I guess. I mean, there's more details of all those things, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave That's it the there. story so far anyway. Yeah. But my name is Dan Ray. I live in Greensboro, North Carolina. And similar to Adam, I started playing piano when I was five and guitar when I was 12. I mentioned a lot in the room have that same kind of, you know, when you picked it up story. I was the musical kid all through high school. At one point I was in choir, band, rock band, handbell choir, a few other things, the musical. And I started the first student run rock band that my high school had ever seen back in the, the late 1900s. And uh, then I went to college. I went to uh, a college called St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota, top 10 in the, in the country music school, mostly uh, famous for their choral program. And uh, I let their freshman weed out process weed me out uh, freshman year. It was, uh, the music department was super competitive and not the kind of cozy home I'd had in the music department in high school. And I kind of told myself, look, I can, I can play guitar in my room and be happy. It's all I really need. And so I, be, I had an English major and I came out of doing English major things. I was in marketing for quite a while and and sort of went along with playing guitar in my room and having that be fine. And um, at some point I um, got recruited to play one off uh, one time in this cover band. And then that, it, you know, the rest is kind of history. I'd been in um, other people's projects for a couple go arounds till, till I wasn't. Um, and then I stood up my own project a few years ago named the Clanky Lincolns. The name came from, we were at uh, Disney and... My wife said, hey, you want to go see the Hall of Presidents? And I said, I don't need to see any clanky Lincolns. The band name was born. That project was a whole lot of fun. Uh, did not survive COVID. We were all sort of ready to come out of lockdown at different times. And people wanted to play. And we went our different ways. Friendly, but, you know, sad to have that project end. We now started a new thing called The New Strange, which is um, general purpose cover band. Very diverse. Uh, doing party hits. Um from across the spectrum, four piece with a fiddle, which is a little unusual, kind of sets us apart, uh, two singers and a fiddle. And um, yeah, a couple of years ago, I realized that um, there was this guy who on both Reddit and Facebook, we seem to be on the same side of all these arguments. And then uh, we just kind of started chatting and um, then we started recording our chats and putting them on podcasts and the rest is kind of history. That's So I do music evenings and weekends. Uh, what I do during the day is I'm a product manager in the property tech space. I work for a multiple listing service as a product manager. I think that's my story so far. We'll see what's next. Yeah. So Rob, you you had um go ahead. Yeah, um, could you guys talk a little bit about branding and establishing your act? Let me just start with the first part of that cuz it's, it's a drum that I beat. Uh, having come from marketing and having a background in brand design and brand management. First thing I'm going to tell you is that when I say brand, I don't mean what you're thinking of when I say brand. I don't mean logo. I don't mean name. I don't mean color scheme. Those are branding, brand, you know, design. But a brand is a very specific thing that most organizations that try to brand themselves don't think about at the right time. They think about way too late. I got a great definition here. I had to look it up and I don't know where this came from. So I'm going to claim that it's original to me, but it's not, but I'm going to claim it. Here it is. A brand is defined by the set of expectations, memories, stories, and relationships that taken together account for a client's decision to choose one company, product, or service over another. I'll do that again because it's dense. A brand is the promise of a distinct experience defined by the set of expectations, memories, stories, and relationships that taken together account for a client's decision to choose one company, product, or service over another. So right at the heart of that is a brand is the promise of a distinct experience. And I think that a lot of bands say, hey, let's be a band, and then kind of decide, well, what should we play? And how should, you know, th there's not a lot of sitting down and thinking beforehand about what is the show we want to put on? What is the experience we want people to have? Is it like a sit down, thinky, coffee house, listening roomy kind of experience? Is it a great big wild party? Is it something else? That thinking really needs to be done first before you think of a name, before you think of a logo. Don't go on Canva and start building things with guitar headstocks, right? You got, you really want to think about it. Don't what, do that anyway. Just don't, don't do that, that anyway. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a jumping off point. I've found some good stuff there. But point is, you really, you know, you don't know what headstock to choose <laughs> until you've decided what is the experience that I'm going to promise? What is my brand promise? What's the story I'm going to tell here? And it's a bigger thing than just the thing I put in the corner of my flyer. Everything about you is part of your brand. How you show up to load in, right? How you interact with venue staff. All of that 
contributes to the story you're telling about the experience that you're leaving people with. And I had a, an epiphany when I realized I have a brand I deliver from stage. And then I have a brand I deliver when I'm talking with a booker and they're different brands, right? I'm a big party on stage. I'm eclectic and fun, but that's not what I sell to a booker. I sell reliable. I sell deliver on an audience. I sell connecting with your audience, keeping them here. And I know the the game, right? My job is to keep your people here so that they keep buying alcohol. That's the fundamental here. And I make sure the booker knows that because that's part of the, the the story I'm telling about Dan is that I'm aware of that and that I, that's part of my brand. I'm, I'm your business partner for the night. Once you've decided that about yourself, now that can start to drive the flavor of the copy you write about yourself and your bio, <laughs> which headstock you choose at Canva, you know, all of these things fall out of some very fundamental decisions you got to make about what is it that I'm out to deliver. The one thing I would tag onto that is whether you do all of the things that Dan mentions or not, your brand exists. So it is imperative for you to be intentional about it because otherwise you have created this unintentional branding that may or may not be to your benefit. And it's not just, you know, it, we kind of come from the world of putting bands together, but this is also the case with individual artists. Like if you are just a solo artist, all these same things still apply. As far as trying to figure out first steps and or, or getting yourself established, the way that you position yourself to potential clients, venue owners, booking agents, that kind of thing. Initially, it's just a matter of getting your foot in the door. And there's lots of creative ways of doing that. You know, there's all of these fun stories about people who call or email acting as the representative for the person when they're just the person, uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of unique tactics, but ultimately the way that I have found success in my market is by being a helpful person. So the way that I kind of view success and reputation in the area that I work in is that when somebody needs something, I am a person who can facilitate that assistance. I have a wide network of people. I have the ability to plug one person into another person or one person to a specific venue or that kind of thing. And being resourceful is a great way to ingratiate yourself with the musician scene around you. And uh, also just kind of having an abundance mindset that other people's success doesn't negatively impact you. It's a better way to operate in this world because it is very easy to be competitive and uh, precious, but uh, I have found that to not benefit me typically. Yeah, that what Adam's talking about, there's a thing called networking and the music business being fundamentally social. <laughs> you're going to have a lot of networking and the mistake people make with networking is like, let me make a lot of contacts so that when I need something, I can tap them. But that's not how to, how to network. What you want to do is build a lot of relationships so that when somebody says, gosh, I'm looking for something and you're like, oh, I, I know who has something and you can put them together. And when you're known in your market as the person who can connect stuff, that you're the connective tissue of the society of your marketplace, then you're suddenly really valuable and stuff starts to come your way, even though your attention's never been on that. That's that's like a down the road side effect. Maybe what I'm interested in is like, gosh, that cool, that guy's project's really cool. And you know, this person could really contribute. Being the person who makes those sorts of connections is a really, really powerful thing. And it's the best, it's the best way to do this phenomenon called networking. Well, and I, I think to sum that up is that when you are meeting new people, you don't want to look at it as what they can do for you is what you can do for them. Always be in a position to add value yep. however you can. Right. Whatever skill set you have, whatever contacts or resources that are at your disposal that could benefit other people, ultimately that is the way that you need to position yourself with other people uh, in this industry, because that's how you get the connections that, you know, will ultimately propel you forward. Not a coincidence. There's a lot of overlap there between just being a good person. Yeah. But I mean, it's not, it's not part and parcel. I know plenty of terrible people who are very <laughs> successful as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. It is what it is. Yes. All right. You got something else to prompt us with? Booking. Uh, booking. There's a number of ways to do things. Now, in, in my particular situation, because I had partnered with that group of guys that already kind of had some juice in our market, they also created their own agency. And so when we were ready to start playing out, 
we had this marketing apparatus that was built in that kind of helped us establish our, our name in, in that world. But over time, our ability to, to book events and shows is purely based off of our name recognition and our reputation in, in the industry. So as far as like our current situation, I do zero advertising for any of my products. Uh, the websites, SEO, and just word of mouth is, is the way that we have built the business that we, that we operate. And ultimately, you being able to deliver on what you say you're going to do is the way that you're going to get more opportunities. You know, I have the luxury now of doing this for, you know, having an existing product for 10 years, or I can be like, I'm so-and-so from, you know, from this band, we're looking to fill some dates. Do you have anything available? Typically that's all it takes, but you have to start by, you know, whatever means necessary. I would typically not recommend open mics, but if that's the only thing available in your market, then, you know, by all means do what you can to get your hours in and, and try to make your name known. Uh, in, in the venues around where you are. And ultimately just, you know, it's always about trying to provide value. If you have a good night at a club or a, or a venue, get all the stats that you can, get bar sales, get ticket sales, get whatever positive metrics, like actual numerical things that you can provide to the next perspective venue that you wanna partner with. Uh, having those kinds of things to provide is ultimately gonna make getting into the places you want to get into that much easier. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I know people who play a gig, you know, I do a lot of acoustic work as well as being in bands. So I, I'm pretty plugged into the acoustic market in my area here. And I saw a guy playing one time who I knew and I hung out. And at the end of the night, you know, I was chatting with him. It's like, oh, what a great night. I feel like I played really well. I really played fun stuff that I really loved. And I looked around the room and it was, it was like me and three other guys. And there's just, you got to be plugged into the reality of what that venue needs from you. You performing well, maybe it's a means to an end, maybe it doesn't matter at all. But I promise you that venue didn't feel great about that night, bottom line. Now, I don't know how many of you are sort of local venue, bar and restaurant kind of players or looking to get into that, uh, but I do have a killer dealer tactic. Is that kind of what you would like me to talk about, Rob? Yeah, so... Here's what I do when I'm trying to start up a new project cold or when I'm trying to crack new venues I've never been in before. First of all, I learn my market, you know, and I watch Facebook and I watch Instagram. I watch people talking about where they're booked. And I learn kind of what places they're out there booking, especially the ones I've never been to before. I go out often with a bandmate with me. It's good to do this as a, as a duo. And when I do this is Saturday afternoon. The time to catch a manager of a bar or a restaurant is Saturday afternoon between like two and four. Because it's pretty quiet in there at those times. Usually, in my experience, the manager is not around on a Saturday night. Usually, they're out by like three, four, five. So, catch them like after the lunch rush, before they bail or dinner picks up. That is the window. And so, here's what I do I go into a bar, sit down, order a drink. If you don't drink, order a soda. It's important that you be a customer first and then chat with the bartender. Hey, I understand you guys do live music here. Oh, yeah, we do every Thursday night you know, twice on Fridays. Wow, cool. Um, I, you know, I play. Uh, is the person who manages the program around? It's like, oh yeah, it'd be my manager. And yeah, she's right over here. Or you know what? It's me. Or sometimes, yeah, you know what? They're not in right now. But most of the time I find myself being introduced to the right person. And what I always have is a very nicely built one sheet. So it's a, a one page marketing piece. Often I'll put I mentioned earlier about the two brands that I have, what I deliver from stage and what I deliver to the venue. And I'll often put, I'll design the front and back of the sheet with those two things in mind. The one that's about the performance, I'll often have like a sample set list. My whole shtick when I'm performing is about the the breadth of what I do. I'll go from something that's on the radio now to some oldie, to some classic rock thing, to some 80s rock, you know, just I jump all over the place. And so I, I, I show that in my sample set list. And a lot of times they look at that and they're like, whoa, you do? Wow, that, that's eclectic. Like, yeah, that's my deal. You know, you'd be amazed how often just showing up with a well-prepared marketing piece and being sort of presentable and friendly and having a chat turns into them pulling out their calendar. I have cracked a lot of new venues, just walking in, buying a beer, being friendly, asking the right questions. So A, don't be shy about that. Here's a good trick. When they've got the calendar out and you're looking for a date and you find one and you pick one and you write it down, and you decide on the pay and the time and all that stuff. Here's what you say. 
listen, since you got the book out, let's put another date on. If you, if you hate me the first time, we'll cancel a second one. Almost 100% of the time they've been like, yeah, all right. They flip forward a month or two and put me down for a second date. By the time you've done that, you're starting to have an in. That second date, you're starting to have a relationship that you can then lean on. You can then, you're never, you can never rely on anything really, but, but you've at least got some track record that you can refer to in the next conversation with those guys. And at least if nothing else, you know who to call. So that's my tactic. Go do it. Steal it. Get out there. And one thing that we were, we had actually mentioned this recently was, you know, talking about ways that you can get out in front of people. And Dan is really good about the front facing, like face to face in real life kind of thing. And it's, it's hundred percent valid, but I, I also want to posit that doing things through email and through social media has its own specific benefits, mostly as a way for you as a musician or as an established act to use it as like a portfolio of like, Hey, this is what I, this is what we've done before. This is what we're I'm capable of. And it also gives you the ability to have some sort of paper trail when you are establishing these initial contacts, because a lot of times if you do go in, let's say you do your, your two to four on a Saturday, like Dan mentioned, and um, you know, Steve, the booking guy is not there that day. The likelihood that the person bartending is going to tell Steve that you drop by is not large. So by sending emails and that kind of thing, when you go and talk to somebody or they try to pawn you off to a, another deal, but you can be like, hey, actually I, I sent an email on the 23rd and hadn't heard back from anybody. So I figured I'd just come in. It gives them the appearance that you're actually serious about it. You're trying to put stuff out there and uh, you're following up, which is uh, yeah. a, a good thing to do. We sometimes get asked, how do I get venues to return my emails? And the answer is you can't, you won't. And they don't pretty much. Um, but I did have one, I, I still send them. Before my Saturday, I'll send I'll send an email if I know the if I know the person email. I'll try it during the week before that Saturday. And um a couple of times I've had it pan out where the person I, I got in touch with the booker and their initial reaction was, Oh, you gotta email me. And I was able to say, you know what, gosh, I did like three weeks ago. And then it's kind of like, oh, like you got me. Like, I'm sorry, you know, don't want to make him feel bad in the conversation. You always want him to feel good. But there's a moment of like, boy, man, I tried that. You must be so busy. <laughs> and that, that can work in your favor. All right, so let's talk about market value. You got the, the booker's ear and you're trying to figure out where to go from here. So, you know, when you are an unproven commodity, your ability to leverage your value is low because you don't have anything to compare yourself to or to provide in regards to the venue owner as to whether or not you can do what they need you to do. And what they need you to do is to bring people into their establishment that consume stuff so that the way that this works is that if the venue doesn't make money, you don't make money. And so you have to be in a position to show them that you can make them money because that's ultimately what this is. This is an exchange of services in exchange for goods. So you may not have that leverage initially. And there's typically two ways that you are paid as a performer. Uh, you're either going to do a guarantee, which is whether five people show up or 500 people show up, you get a flat rate. You can do ticketed events where basically somebody pays a cover, buys a ticket. Uh, and then once the venue has recouped whatever expenses they've, they've had, whether that's production or overhead or what have you, marketing budget. They'll, they'll have um, a list of things. Yeah, of course. They'll have plenty of things that they're going to take off the top. Yeah. And then you'll get a percentage of that typically. Past a certain point, there's a mix of those two things where you're going to get a certain fee, but if ticket sales exceed a particular threshold, there might be some additional incentives added on. So initially, you're not going to have a lot of leverage. You're not going to be able to tell people what you're worth. But once you have a track record, whether, like I said before, like if you have a good night, keep those stats. Those are the ways that you can add value and, and give yourself leverage in those negotiations. So in the private party world, because we're basically a fully contained product, uh, we tell the people what we cost. And my bands right now are in the, as of, as of a couple of weeks ago, $3,000 to eight grand is kind of the, the window that we operate in per show. And outside of that though, like we've got a public date coming up and it's, it's straight ticket sales. Now this venue is particularly large and we've never had a bad night there, but the likelihood of us hitting that three to $8,000 mark there is not impossible, but you know, we're probably not going to hit that level 
uh, you know, on any given Saturday night. But over time, we've been more successful at this particular venue. And as we continue to promote and do those things, you know, our our pay has gone up. But up to that point, you know, you are only as valuable as the amount of money you can generate for the venue, ultimately. Yeah, and it's important to understand that in a in a guarantee deal where it's either five people or five hundred, but you get paid the same, the venue's taking all the risk, hundred percent of the risk. Yep. And so. If that risk doesn't pay off for them, they won't take that risk on you again. This is yep. this is not complicated math, right? In the face of that lack of leverage, we sometimes see people saying, well, I'll just offer to play for free until they trust that I can deliver. Please do not do that. Please don't do that. It undervalues you. It undervalues the market. It tanks the, the competitive evenness of the market. There are venues out there who are like, why should I pay some guy when th this you know kid will do it for free? And you're worth you're worth more than that, or at least stand that you are, you know, impute that you are, <laughs> make the case that you are, and then get get where you got to be to deliver on the the value. You know, we can talk a little about marketing and how to grow how to grow your following. Adam actually has a lot to say about that, so when we get to that, I'll turn it over to him. But yeah. bad things happen when performers perform for free. Don't. Don't do that. Another thing that Rob just was asking about, or I'm sorry, Mr. Sharp, I don't know how to- Professor how, Sharp? How this I don't yeah. know. Doctor? No. Yeah. Asking about quality video footage in regards to booking. Uh, yeah, it it's going to be valuable. The way that we as performers can, uh, I guess, justify our existence or our fee or what have you is by the precedent set before us. And the easiest way to convince a venue owner that you will fill their bar and that people will hang out and have fun is for you to have a promo video of a bar being full of people having fun. And so, you know, when we, when we do promo video, I typically want to do it at a venue where I know there's going to be a really good turnout and the videographers only directions are I need the band looking cool and people having fun. Those are the only things that I care about. I'm not trying to get, I need a wide shot from like stage left. What is like, no, find moments where individuals or the band itself looks cool on stage and videos of people having fun. There's one particular part of our promo video where there's just this blonde girl with her hands up in the air and like just screaming her head off. And it makes it into every single promo clip we use because it is the thing that we are trying to sell people. You are going to feel that way or your guests at the party that you're throwing are going to feel this way. That is the easiest way to get somebody to yes, is that, okay, this is what I want my party to look like, let's hire them. Or this is what I want my venue to look like, let's hire them. Yeah, it's the feeling I wanna have. It's the, the, the promise of a distinct experience. Yep. Absolutely. To call back to branding. I will warn you that bad video is bad. But mediocre video isn't yeah, necessarily no. bad video. The The bar of good is not all that high, but bad video, bad. Absolutely. So do have some editorial taste in yeah. what you put out. Yeah, if you've got a really great sounding video where the, the band is killing it or you are having a good vocal night, but it is a static shot from the back of the room and there is nobody in front of you, that's bad video. If the video audio is kind of cruddy because the sound of the crowd is overpowering what the band's doing, not necessarily bad video. No, that's kind of an experience we want to sell. It's like a certain kind of, uh, of media. I don't know what it is, but I, I know it when I see it. So that's what good video is. Yeah. yeah. Managing a band. Ugh. So uh, yeah, let's talk about band structure, shall we? Yeah. And this is the case with whether you are trying to do music as, a, as an original project, or if you are just doing it as a money-making venture as a, as a professional. Band structure is of paramount importance. It's another one of those things that you need to establish before moving forward. Because once something is set in motion, changing the agreement is very difficult and um, not impossible, but there's going to be collateral damage if you decide that the structure that you have been going on uh, needs to be changed. So uh, I operate as a band leader. I own all of the assets. I pay for the website. I own the PA. I do all of the branding. I do all of the marketing. I hire my musicians like contractors. And I have, I have a pretty stable lineup of guys and gals that play with us very consistently. But I also have a network of sub musicians that can fill their place in the event that they're not available. I do 
ask for input, I don't always take it. Uh, I have been known, if this is not a term that you've heard before, the, the term is asshole, which is when you ask for somebody's opinion, they give it to you and then you ignore it. Uh, I have been guilty of that particular leadership on occasion. I've got guys that have been playing with me for five, six years at this point. And so they, they know the drill, they know the gig, they know the ins and outs of what we do and ultimately their input is valuable. And, and so I, I try to, uh, to bring people in on decisions when necessary. And um, other times it's just like, hey, this is what we're doing moving forward. And that's that. The risk of not making those decisions beforehand is that people are not aligned, don't have aligned intentions and desires. And that's a killer. That's a killer. You hear, you know, um, uh, Adam's actually a mod on the subreddit, our band leaders, or uh, band members. Is that right? No, cover bands is what you're, what you're a mod on. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so I, I saw I, to get people to approve my posts on that. Subject. Yeah, yeah. I, I troll both of them. And on band members, it's just this common thing. Like I'm in a band, but I'm the only one who does anything. And there's just ex this ex kind of expectation in the background. Like it should all be fair. We should all be a happy family, all pulling our weight. I don't know. I've been in some bands that were nominally democracies. I usually ended up doing most everything. Or when somebody else was the band leader, I... And this is my own, this is my own pathology um, that I can't help kind of take over some, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm a driver <laughs> and I, and I want to be contributing a lot. And then even in, you know, so then we get in these bands that are, everybody has an equal say and we're all in it together. But funny, I look around and I'm doing all the booking and I own the PA and I do all the setup and tear down at the gigs. And it's kind of a lot, a lot's on me for a very equal system. It doesn't, it doesn't end up being quite so equal. So um, for my pro current project, I put it together. I started it. I declared that I'm the leader of it. I am a benevolent despot in that like my word is law, but I really do want your input. I try not to be that thing Adam just said, but I, it happens. I know of one band, one band, and they're crazy successful that really does have an even division of labor and all four of the members pull their weight about the area of their own responsibility. I know one band that's like that. I know... 20 bands that are broken up because it was supposed to be like that, but it didn't work out that way in reality. And then I know a bunch of really successful and functional projects who have a single person who is the leader and everyone acknowledges it. Yep. So don't be shy about setting that kind of structure up with the people you're working with. So somebody recently, actually the bassist in, in my band said that I should change the name to be the Dan Ray band. She was like, it just says what we are. Like, I mean, okay, I guess, but I don't, I don't really need my name to be up front. I, I'm enough up front without that, frankly, for my own ego, but don't be shy about that. Don't be shy about having a vision and being the one who's going to see it through and needing people to contribute to it. And it's great when they can do that in a way that they own it too, right? They're part, they're, they experience partnership, they experience their input is heard and acted on and they have influence, you know, and they're, they're part of the design and future and everything. But if it's not like that, if they're hired folks, then have them be hired folks. And that's fine. That's completely fine. Your vision can be your vision and you can, you can deliver it. And, and I don't know, I hope that doesn't, there, there is, I think this notion that a band ought to be like a kumbaya family thing. Some might be, it's not been my experience. Yeah. And it, kind of to add on to that, when, if you're talking about, let's say you're a solo artist, as long as people know from the jump, like this is my vision and I need people to help manifest it. Like most people, who are hired as sidemen have no issue with that. Just That's let right. them know ahead of time. But That's I right. will say this, that the one thing that you have to take into account, if you are the person in charge, if you promise something to your musicians and things come up short, the only person who's taking a pay cut is you. Because ultimately the way that you retain good talent is by showing them that you, you value them. And there have been... There have been multiple times where I have played shows for free in order to take care of my people uh, because I know that ultimately I'll have the margin to make up for it. So just, again, it's all about communication. It's all about setting expectations. Um, yeah, and that, actually that's true, not just about money either. Like if, uh, if you've said, you know, come be in this band, we're gonna, whatever the plan is, we'll gig two, three times a month. Well, that's on you now. You just said that and they're looking to you for that. And yeah. so you want to organize yourself around delivering on that, right? People who, who join you in your vision are counting on you to keep your word about the things that you are laying out as the vision. So yeah. uh, mean it when you say it. Rob was asking what it's like to lead and manage groups from the outside when you aren't the front guy. 
Uh, I don't have a lot of examples of that because I, <laughs> I front most of the stuff uh, that we do, but I do work a lot with other groups, you know, because we're an agency due to scheduling stuff or what other re things that come up. Uh, I typically do have to sub out work with other people. And this is another one of those examples of being a person who provides value. If you have an opportunity that you can't meet yourself, be generous with other people and build that trust with other bands. Because in, in our world now, I've got probably five or six other band leaders that I am in very close, constant communication with for the times where we got an inquiry for um, live band karaoke and the band's already booked. So I've got two people off the top of my head that I'm going to call to fill those dates because ultimately I know that they are on the level and that they take things seriously and that I can trust that they will meet the expectations that I set for the clients. And ultimately that's what it, that's what it boils down to, especially as an agent. Uh, how much did building the agency increase our booking? I can't really say because not only are the bands booked under our agency, but we're also booked, other people are booking us as well. It definitely is a way to establish credibility with, with potential clients. I would say our corporate work has increased pretty solidly due to the fact that it's all under one umbrella. Uh, the one thing that really kicked up when the, when the agency site was published was the live band karaoke thing. And, and it was it was really strange that it felt like all of a sudden, like all of the leads we were getting were these karaoke things. And it was something, <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily the agency itself or the way that uh, Squarespace does SEO, but I don't know if it's still the case. I, I may need to you know verify that. But if you put live band karaoke Atlanta in Google, like we were just the first thing that popped up. That wasn't anything that I necessarily did intentionally. I didn't pay anybody extra to do that, but, um, it, it became pretty clear that uh, that's where things were coming from and that's how people were finding us. And that's another thing that I always do is that when we get an inquiry, the first thing I ask is, thank you so much for reaching out. How did you find us? It's a, it's a good way to kind of figure out how people know the entity or the band or the, you know, where, wherever it's coming from. And I would say for, you know, other than like, hey, you were the first result when I searched for this thing, it's usually, oh, I was at this event that you played or my friend had a party and said that you guys were great. Like, it's all about reputation. It's all about word of mouth. Like that's how you, that's how you generate business. Yeah. And it's another piece of analytics. That's really important. When I was in marketing, we had a saying, um, half of your marketing dollars are wasted, but there's no way to know which half. So yeah. Um, figuring out sort of where your leads are sourced is a really important way to know where to invest. You know, Oh, I, I saw, I saw that, um, that ad you put up for your gig and whatever. Ah, good. Good to know. Spent some bucks on that. So thumbs up. Yeah. yeah. Ah. Ooh, copyright issues in branding and as a cover band live in in content. So my '80s band is uh, is named named after a clothing company called Members Only. They sell these jackets. They still sell them. You can buy them new, and we wear them on stage. And there's always kind of been this creeping thought in the back of your head is like some. I'm just I'm just waiting for that cease and desist letter to come in, but. It really kind of depends on the way that you establish yourself in the marketplace. Like we're not trying to, we have a pretty particular window as far as like how far we're willing to travel. So we are, we are a regional group that I don't think has hit their radar. And I think ultimately because we are sort of brand ambassadors by, you know, wearing and selling their products, uh, they haven't either noticed or care. The funny thing is, is that when we start getting into like our merchandising, it gets a little murky because you're using another company's name on now we don't sell jackets with the name members only on them of course but uh one of our logos is clearly the mtv logo uh we've done stranger things logos and i've literally i've sent these designs to people it's like i don't know who's going to sue us first but as of right now that has not happened and as you do have a plan for exactly how you would cease and desist if yeah i've got it yeah there, there's there's a very i have a very solid plan b that we will you yeah. know we will jettison the name if necessary, but at this point, I really hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. But if it does, you know, I, I feel like we, we we had a good run. We we got what we needed out of it. Um, talking about copyright in regards to live performance, I mean, there's a there's a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of questions. Actually, one of the other things that uh, 
SEO has kind of helped us with. On the website, coverbankconfidential.com, I took the, the script that I did in regards to copyright law for cover songs. And now it's like the blurb that pops up in Google when you say, do I need to pay royalties for covers? That article pops up you know, before even the search results do, which is kind of cool. As a, perf as a performer, if you are playing at a venue and you are doing covers, you do not have to pay for those. That's the venue's responsibility. Every one of the performing rights organizations, ASCAP, BMI, CSEC in the US, sell these things called blanket licenses that venues opt into annually to cover those performances. If you are wanting to do a cover that you are going to release on a streaming platform or physical media, uh, you have to pay what's called a mechanical license to the uh, the copyright owners. If you're using any of the major distribution, independent distribution services, CD Baby, TuneCore, DistroKid, Distro they all have those kinds of mechanisms built into their products. So typically mechanical licenses revolve around as far as pricing goes, the number of units you expect to sell or the number of streams you expect to get. And those can always be extended or what have you. But you also will be able to receive royalties on those streams and those sales uh, after you have paid the mechanical royalties to the copyright owners. And that's my copyright law class from 2003, yeah. you know, kicking in. And yeah. uh, it's, it's an ever evolving uh, deal. But if you want to know why Disney keeps doing live action remakes of all of their old movies, that's why. They're just, it's just copyright. They're trying to, you know, maintain their claws in the intellectual property that they've got. Yeah. You know, the, the PROs, ASCAP and BMI, CSAC, they, their product is to sell to a venue. Sometimes people are confused about that and want the, think that the performer is on the hook for something there. They have nothing to sell you. That's not, that's not what they do. Um, they bill the venue and it's a, it's a, it's a function of the venue's capacity. It's like literally a dollars per what the fire marshal says this room will hold. And I actually knew a guy, I took some guitar lessons for him a while, who was a ASCAP auditor. He went into places and sat there and had a few beers and wrote down the songs he heard. And and that is a know, legitimate job. It's a job. And and then, you know, phoned him home and then ASCAP would send a bill to that venue because, you know, they got caught playing ASCAP licensed music that they didn't have a license to play. So that's a real thing. I mean, you are a narc, but, you know, they do pay yeah. you to, to drink beer at a, at a venue. So, all right, let's do some Q and A. Put in like a robot voice for the podcast. Ah. Finding right. a line between persistence and being annoying. I, I, I don't know where, where that line is. Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah. again, I, it's a, it's a line when you cross it, you know, but you may not know until you cross it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there are people who don't know, I think, but you know, uh, you're going to have to deal with the fact that music includes sales. And a lot of people really resist that. A lot of people really like, you know, it's supposed to be art and it is, but there is this whole social sales marketing side to it that does take persistence. It really absolutely does. And um, I've followed up, oh, man, you know, the number of times I've booked a gig on my sixth visit to a place. Uh, a couple of times I walked in and I've seen the manager, I've known where I was going and the manager's like, oh no, like we've done that. We've done that. And there does come a line you cross where it's not, you you know, it just becomes a joke. You're never, you're never going to get the goods there. Eh. Do you, I need you to tell, do I need to tell my story? I guess. I don't even know what story it is. So when, when my, when my initial project got started there, there was like this venue in, in our market that all of the big bands played at. And uh, first year I sent the guy who owns the place, our promo said, Hey, we're booking for next year. Let us know if you have any openings. Six months go by, we get a new promo video. I sent it to them. Hey, here's our new promo. If you need any dates filled, let me know. Nothing. A year passes. Another promo video comes out. Hey, here's our promo. Check this out. Nothing. Two years go by. Another new promo comes out. And I literally did this kind of passively over the course of seven years until literally two years ago, they email me like, hey, you guys want to put some dates on the books? And I got there by being persistent, just reminding them, hey, we're still out here, but also just showing them all the stuff that we were doing. And that has everything to do with the way that you market yourself on social media and in, you know, just in the spaces that people occupy. So if you, if we played, you know, to 
3,000 people at a municipal event, put those pictures up, put that video up. And you're just showing them over time that like, we are successful. We are, we are a known entity. We are a money-making venture. We are here. We are here. We are here until eventually that opportunity opened up for us. So persistence can look like a lot of things. And sometimes the answer is no right now. And you can be okay with the answer being no right now. Personally, I was like, we don't need the, and, and truth be told, we, we, we don't, but the fact that we did well in spite of their lack of interest is just as important as being asked to, you know, to play at a venue that you want to play at. Yeah. And it's fair to say that the difference in approaches, which, um, <laughs> it's not a, a coincidence that they refer to our difference in temperament, um, you know, introvert versus extrovert, I probably become annoying a lot faster the way I do it, which, you know, I just got to be responsible for. Wouldn't be the first time in my life I've been told that. But if you read the room, if you kind of have good social skills and kind of understand whether it's like, hey, again, or, oh my God, you know, what it looks like when you walk in the door, you can, you can navigate that. Well, and also I was doing gigs with other bands at that venue. And right. so it was always just kind of like, oh, hey, I never brought it up. But mm. he knew and I knew. Yep. And yep. we just left it at that. Social media marketing strategies. It's all you. Okay. So when I started doing stuff, now, full disclosure, social media has been a thing that I've been pretty passionate about forever. But I'm going to date myself in a sense that um, when Facebook came out, it was by school. And so I got. I got a Facebook account the day that MTSU was added to the list of schools that Facebook was available for. CNN did a piece on my band because of the way that we used MySpace to market ourselves. I became very aware, I would say early on, but also a little late in the game, that ultimately personal branding is the thing that you need to focus on because other bandmates will come and go, but like your ability to market yourself as a product, and I know that sucks. I know it's another thing that a lot of people are stoked on, but ultimately you need to sell yourself as the product, whether you are a, a hired gun, whether you were a solo artist, whether you are a part of a band, ultimately the way that you get into other opportunities is by showing people what you can do. And you want to amplify your successes and you want to minimize your failures. So if you have a great show, take a picture with the, with the crowd. And the other thing that I always say to do is that always add a, a call to action. If you need a guitar player or you need, a, if you are an event planner and you need a killer live band, let, you know, hit me up, let us know. And then it's also just finding a way because people want to follow you as a person before they may or may be interested in consuming the, the content that you make or the art that you you create. So when you are trying to figure out how to post things, the formula that I'm, I'm always struggling with is nutritious versus delicious, which is how much of your content is informative, helpful, educational versus pure entertainment. So are you posting memes? Are you posting silly TikTok stuff? Or are you providing value? Because ultimately that's what people are into. And finding the right balance of those two things is really the the secret sauce. Because I would, if I had my druthers, I would just be informational, educational. That's what all of our content really is. TikTok's actually the first venue where I feel like I've kind of let go of that a bit and and just do stupid stuff just for the sake of it being stupid. Um, negative feedback on social media, it happens. Uh, it typically only happens when you're doing something right. So if uh, people have something bad to say about you. Uh, or don't like your particular viewpoint on something, it's easy to say, just brush it off. But sometimes they say something really pointed and specific. And you just, you do have to sometimes just put the phone down, walk away, you know, touch some grass as, uh, as the kids say. But ultimately, like the way that you succeed on any front is just being persistent. So if somebody has something bad to say and, and you know, they don't have a point, sometimes they have a point. Sometimes if you do something stupid, and uh, you get called out and it's rightfully so, then, you know, that's another story. But uh, yeah, people have said lots of things about me on, <laughs> on social media. And um, what I consider I'm fortunate is that 
the amount of uh, goodwill that I have garnered with the community of musicians that I speak to, typically when something like that happens, I'm not the one that def that's defending myself. I've got this network of people who are willing to, you know, jump in and, and do it for me, which is, you know, ultimately what you want. Yeah, personally punching back online, rarely the move, I would say. Yeah, and if you and if that's where you're at and that's what you're feeling, maybe check your uh, emotional temperature before you uh, you 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 make that post because very rarely. Unless that's a brand decision you've made. If I'm I'm going to be that guy, right? That's the brand I am. I promise you, a, you know, like an, a, a belligerent online presence. Sure, but be prepared that the energy that you put out is the energy you're going to attract. For sure. Look, yeah, I mean, all that choice comes with options, you know, yep. like with consequences, right? So if you're going to be, um, if you're going to be a jerk online, just prepare to get that in return for what you're saying, and just maybe be okay with the kind of people that you are going to piss off with that kind of information. Like, I don't mind making old guitar players mad because I tell them that tube amps are dumb. I just don't care. Like, yeah. I kind of want them that way. The line between what you want in a performance and what is marketable. This sounds to me like a motivation discussion because there's some stuff I do for myself and there's, and, but I, I'm trying to word this the right way. It's, are you trying to put your audience through something or are you trying to do something for them? Because there are definitely moments where you want to fulfill yourself artistically and that's totally fine, but don't expect people to want to pay for that. You know, maybe at some point the scale tips in your favor and what you do artistically is what people are interested in, but ultimately you need to get your head into the fact that you are not in the music business, you're in the entertainment industry. So ultimately, whatever it is that you do, whether it's performing live, writing songs, making content, is it entertaining? Is it something that other people want to watch? If it's not, then it's art and that's fine, but only do that for yourself. Like at this point, most of the composing, most of the music writing that I do is just for my own creative output. Um, I do music beds and stuff for like videos that I make, or if I want to just sit down and write something, I'm doing it for just my own personal enrichment. At this point in my life, I am no longer interested in selling that part of me to strangers in exchange for money. I'd much rather do that with my expertise and um, experience. I think it's fair to say that no matter what artistic choices a performer or any other kind of artist makes, there is a niche out there that will consume it, right? But, uh, and we've seen plenty of evidence of that, right? Um, I'm super into a project by Robert Fripp called The League of Crafty Guitarists. Tough listen, but super, I, I really enjoy it. And so if you don't know it, look it up and then you'll be like, dude, he's into some, wow. But the choice to have that, be your expression again just like it's a it's a branding choice and branding choices come with consequences so if what's important to you is to be true to some artistic vision that's going to drastically limit the market that'll consume you that's valid that there there are plenty of artists who choose that and that's one that's one choice out of a lot that you know you gotta you gotta weigh the artistic satisfaction versus the commercial satisfaction and kind of figure out where you personally come down that's what how, I'd say about that. How can you multiply opportunities? Um, I think that kind of depends on what the opportunity is, but typically it's around um, making big swings when people are paying attention. So a recent thing that kind of popped up is that uh, there, was a, there was a TikTok that came out where it was just this guitar player who was like, I just realized that all these pop-up songs sound the same. And then they go and they start playing all the riffs using this particular guitar tone. And it, I think it's currently, it may be just shy of a million views uh, as of this morning. Well, the person who made that video, all the comments were, how did you do it? How does, like, what is the rig? What is, what, how do you make it sound that way? And it turns out they used one of the presets that I built in a, in a YouTube video, which is like the ultimate pop punk tone. So what did I do? Well, I took that person's video and I stitched it. And I said, hey, it turns out that this video that's got a million views, those are my presets. If you want to check those out, go to my YouTube page. I'm giving them away for free. And I got a whole bunch of new followers as a result of it. And sometimes it's like somebody stitches you and something cool happens. You're like, oh, snap. 
like the the funniest thing that happened recently is that I was live streaming a um a, a solo acoustic show I was doing at a bar like on a Wednesday night. And I started playing an Edwin McCain song and Edwin McCain tuned into the live stream and started like heckling me about playing his song and that I owed him 0.0003 cents and all of that stuff. And we actually, we, we have a, a friendship now through the, the, the posts that I make. And yeah, the internet's weird. And uh, you can leverage it for all kinds of stuff. The, the, another, another take at that is um, to consider that every gig is a sales pitch. Yep. Like, like always, always. There's somebody in the room who wants to hire you and they just don't know it yet. So, you know, there are no throwaway moments of a gig because every gig is a sales pitch always. I'm sure they're telling him to type faster. Type faster, yeah. Rob. If you do go to the artist, how to find your niche. Well, so interestingly enough, uh, I sent a link to to your teacher about a uh, a book that I wrote, and it's it's an ebook. It's not very long. That I believe is going to be available to all of you uh, if you want to check it out. And um, the way that you do that is kind of through all the stuff that we talked about. It's the 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 system that I I I don't know if I created it or coined it. The acronym is B A N D. So you want to build a story. You want to assess your market. You want to niche down, and then deliver whatever it is you're you're selling. So you you find the niche by finding the communities that resonate with whatever it is that you are trying to do. If it's online, you know maybe you are creating music that sounds like a particular artist or is in a particular genre. Well, you can start creating content around that particular thing. You know, talking about artists that I feel like that are doing a really good job of that. There's a guy named Andy Negative on online that does pop punk content. And he's, it's a little, it's kind of cringe, but he is, he's authentically that guy. And um, he's been able to build a pretty big following. Uh, There's a band called Loveless that I think does a really good job of that. And there's another group called Nicotine Dolls, whose singer has like the most ridiculous voice ever. And um, they found their, their people by creating stuff that, that they were passionate about that did well. And typically when something hits, you'll see it, you know, it, it, it'll be very obvious, but it's also, you have to be willing to do those things in a vacuum initially, because the, there's so much stuff. There's the, like, there's no shortage of things to consume. So finding an audience can be tough. When Dan and I started this, uh, our, our podcast, it was probably, we had, we put out 50 episodes before anybody was really paying attention. Yeah. We had a joke who could say, say hello to our listener. Yeah. And the first year, I think we had, I don't know, maybe like 8,000 downloads. And then the next year it was like 40,000. Like it was, <laughs> these things kind of compound over time, but it, it, it really is persistence you get where you want to go by doing the thing anyway. And typically the audience will find you. I think the only thing I'd add to that is um, you want to understand that how people understand new things is by way of things they already understand. So if you're bringing out this thing, you know, think about somebody pitching a TV show that the the classic thing you hear them say in TV shows about pitching TV shows, like it's, so it's stranger things meets adventure time. Wow. No, I'm thinking about that. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> that's that's because how we get a grip on something new is by understanding what it's like. And so as much as your artistic expression might be completely unique, completely its own thing, validly, I'm not saying it's not, you want to be able to tell a story about it or 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 find people who are into something that is adjacent enough that you can speak the language and, and that you can... Um, you can have people come come to a show and be like, "Oh yeah, no, I see. I see. This is you know, I'm really into weird ethnopop." So, well, here's an example. So the, the the last original group I was in was a female fronted punk group, and so everyone, anytime we did anything, was like, "Oh, like Paramore," and you're like, "Yeah, like Paramore." Sure. And did we end up playing at a Twilight movie premiere? Yeah. And did we play Decode by Paramore? Of course we did. But we also played an hour's worth of our own stuff, which, you know, it helped us kind of ingratiate ourselves with a totally different audience. So, you know, it's easy for people to kind of just like say something is derivative 
because it sounds like or looks like or acts like something else doesn't invalidate what it is that you're doing. It's just you have to be willing to go along with it and not necessarily be offended if people don't get it from, you know, just from walking in the room and staring at it for a couple of seconds. Because that's yeah. really all people are going to do. They'll be like, oh, it's this. And either they like that thing or they don't. A lot of people laughing at that Twilight premiere thing. They give us a bunch <laughs> of free swag, though. Hey, let me turn this down a little. Oh, that is our end of our class time. I want to thank you guys so much. Can you guys thank our guests? Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm really hoping the audio came out on this. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That sounds good on okay. our end. Uh, and yeah. please, if I'm, I'm open to it, I'm not going to speak on behalf of Dan, but if anybody has any specific questions or anything like that, please totally. feel free to pass our contact information along. Yep. Um, also, you know, Cover Band Confidential is the name of the podcast. They drop an episode every Friday. You, you can wake up to it tomorrow. Listen to it as you're getting ready for class. Um, you will have already heard next week's, but that's all right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, you're going to maybe want to check out their Patreon page because you can get in there with a great community of guys and girls from all different types of cover bands and solo acts and gain a wealth of knowledge. And I think to get into Patreon, that level, it's it's only like five bucks. Is that right? Five months. Yeah. And you can do an annual and save like 10%. And so I think it's like less than 50 bucks for an entire year if you pay it up front. But we're super great community. I know they'd be very welcoming to you guys and want to share a lot of knowledge with you guys. But thank you guys, Adam. Thanks, Rob. And Dan. See you guys later. Bye -bye. Thanks, everybody.